Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. me today is Kelly McGonigal. She is a health psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University. She's written the bestseller, The Willpower Instinct, and most recently, The Upside of Stress, Why Stress is Good for You and How to Get Good at It. I adore Kelly from speaking with her briefly already, but also I think she's super smart and super interesting and writes about very applicable issues. She's the leader in the field that I, I we're going to ask her, but I think she may have invented this term science help as opposed to self-help. I love that idea. Um, and she's really passionate about translating cutting-edge research from psychology, neuroscience, and medicine into practical strategies for health, happiness, and personal success. Um, it's, it's everything that we talk about in this podcast, which is how do you take academic research, how do you take the science that's going on in the world that we're discovering and apply it to leadership, apply it to the way we actually show up in the world day in, day out. That's, that's Kelly's focus, and um, I absolutely adore this book. Kelly, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's start with, um, you know, we just talked about it as your origin story of this idea, right? That, that, you know, stress is bad for you. Everybody knows stress is bad for you. You're a yoga teacher. I've taught yoga. I'm not actively teaching it now, but I've taught yoga. And, and, and you know, it's all about reducing stress. And, and it turns out we may be misleading people and, and we may have been misled ourselves in some ways. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. And so let me just start off by saying I'm trained in three fields, basically psychology, medicine, and these mind body traditions like yoga and meditation. And in every single one of those fields, I was trained to believe that stress was the enemy. And everything that we do is to reduce stress or manage stress because stress gives rise to anything you don't want, whether it's depression or getting divorced or diseases, right? Stress is the leading cause of all things we don't want. That's what I was taught. Um, and that the only reasonable goal was to try to help people avoid it or reduce it. And the, the origin story that we were talking about, you know, so I do a lot of teaching like the science of classes at Stanford, the science of willpower, the science of compassion. And one of my classes is the science of stress. And of course, in that class, I have this big fancy lecture on how stress will kill you in many wonderful ways. And I just given that lecture. And uh, I I read scientific studies the way other people breathe. I spend way too much time every day just doing lit searches and seeing what's new. So I'm always consuming new research. And while I was teaching this class, this was, I think it was 2011, um, this new paper was published that had a title that was something like stress will kill you. That's sort of what I got out of the title. I'm like quickly downloading it. I'm like, great. Awesome. study in my arsenal to prove that stress kills. And then when I read the study, here's what the study actually was. It was an epidemiological study that had followed people for almost a decade. Uh, I think it was like 30,000 adults in the U.S. and had asked them at the beginning of the study how much stress they'd experienced in the past year. And they also asked them this curious question I'd never really seen before in a study. Um, Do you think that your stress is harmful? 
And then they looked at basically who died over the next decade. And what they found is that um, there was no there was no direct relationship between how stressful your life was and your risk of dying. But there was an interaction effect that among people who had the most stressful lives, those who also at the beginning of the study strongly believed that their stress was harmful, harmful to their health, they had uh, an increased risk of dying. But the people who had the most stress in their lives and did not view stress as extremely harmful were the most likely to be alive at the end of the study. In fact, they were more likely to be alive than people who had no stress or very little stress. Uh, and the researchers of this study, they actually estimated that something like 20,000 people a year in this country were dying, not from stress, but from having stressful lives and believing that their stress was harmful. And I think I must have read that study like five times. I was like, no, no, this cannot be. Because, it, you know, talk about cognitive dissonance. I had just given this wonderful lecture about how stress will kill you. And this was a real wake-up moment for me, despite the fact that this was an epidemiological study. It wasn't an experiment. You know, you can argue lots of reasons to not, you know, rush out and change everything you believe based on this one particular study. But it certainly was compelling enough to make me wonder whether what I was doing was creating a mindset that was going to uh, basically amplify any of the harmful effects of stress. And that's when, well, actually, so to tell you the truth, I, I was like, this study does not exist. <laughs> like, I put it away for a little while. Um, the denial but, stage, because it doesn't reinforce everything that you knew and I have been know. teaching. It's sort of sometimes this happens where a study comes out and I'll be like, are people talking about this study? Has anyone else read it? Like, you know, nobody was tweeting about this particular study, uh, no big press releases about it. So I sat on it, not for months. I sat on it for a couple of weeks and I decided that my last lecture, that class, I was going to dig up some research that I didn't often include because I didn't really know what to make of it. But this was other research I had seen that if you think more positively about stress, that stress can be good for you. And because that research also, it was sort of, um, it was a little bit inconsistent with the dominant message that I had been trained in and that I was teaching that stress was bad, you need to you know, cope better with stress or reduce stress. I hadn't really um, exploited this other research that suggests you can turn stress into something positive by embracing it. So I decided to bring that into that class. And at the end of the course, you know, you get your evals, People were talking about how great that lecture was. And I, and I had some emails from students telling me that they were immediately applying it to their benefit. This is research, for example, by Jeremy Jameson, who has looked at uh, how when people are really anxious, if they recognize that their pounding heart is trying to give them energy or that, you know, they're racing thoughts, it's their mind beginning to get focused on, on the task at hand, that if you understand that your stress symptoms are actually your body and brain trying to help you rise to the challenge, and you don't try to calm down. You're like, oh, stress. Okay, this is a resource. This is not proof that I'm going to choke or that I don't belong here or that I can't handle this. Now, when people take that more positive view, they do better, their stress response is healthier, they recover from stressful experiences faster. And then, you know, there's all this other research since that first aha moment for me that has continued to come out suggesting, again, that when you embrace stress, not only does it make you healthier and happier and more successful, it changes the way you interact with other people. It changes the way other people perceive you. Um, it's contagious so that when your stress mindset is more positive, 
the, the people you manage, for example, they're better able to handle stress. So there's a lot of research has come out since then, but that was really the wake up call. Um, because, you know, I don't know about you, but I take my, my role as a teacher very seriously and science is fun. I love doing research, but my core goal in life is to help people thrive. And I'm very attuned to feedback, whether it's direct feedback from individuals or feedback from the universe or feedback from science that says something I'm doing may not be effective, that there might be a more skillful way to reduce people's suffering or to help people thrive. Uh, and so that's what that wake up call was about for me. It made me curious. Um, and I'm really glad I listened because my experience the last five years of shifting how I talk about stress and teach stress, I've become quite convinced that for many people, giving up on the fantasy that you'll ever have a stress-free life uh, is incredibly useful and allows us to engage with stress in a way that we actually can reap some of the lesser appreciated benefits of stress, like its association with meaning. So there's so much to unpack here. You've said so much here. And and I think, first of all, that it is profound, meaning from my own perspective, it, it just reading your book helped me because stress drives me and it drives me in a really positive way. And, and what you just said about meaning is really critical, that if you want to do anything worth anything in this world, you're going to push yourself to your edge. And that in and of itself is going to be stressful. And there's just no way to avoid that. And you wouldn't want to avoid that because you know, that kind of stress means that you're expanding your comfort zone and you're going into areas that are maybe new and that, that you're expanding your capacity to act in the world. And that's really critical. Now, there's this one thing before I go into that, there's this point that you described so beautifully and it's so human and so real. And, and I want to, um, I appreciate you saying it and I want to explore it for a minute, which is this moment of saying, Ooh, I've read this research that basically contradicts everything I know and everything I've been teaching and everything I'm public about, right? That I'm out there and I'm public about this and it's going to shift something for me. And I don't know that I really want to just totally put it out there and, and coming to terms with it and knowing that seeking the truth is more important than kind of what you stood for before and that you could, I mean, I remember this this thing I read about Gandhi, I don't know if it's true or not, but I read it, where he was on a, uh, like a three-day march with, you know, a thousand followers, and he stopped halfway through, and he meditated, and he sat, and then he said, I'm turning around, and they say, what do you mean you're turning around? He says, I'm turning around because I think what we're doing is wrong, and they go, but how could you turn around? You've like already, you know, there's a thousand people behind us, you've already worked. It's like, I would rather be true than consistent. Right. I would rather be I would rather, you know, hold to the value of what we're doing than than, you know, kind of worry about how I'm seen. And you demonstrated that beautifully. But I want to go into like the emotional courage of that moment. Like, what is that? What tipped it for you to say, I'm going to actually contradict what I've been doing for the last five years because I've gotten new information? Yeah, there are a couple of things. I love that you use the word courage because that's one of the, the strengths that um, I feel like I was not born with and I'm always trying to cultivate. Um, there are a couple of things. One I will say is that uh, my, my training in Zen has been very helpful. That's the, the type of meditation that I've studied for the past almost 20 years. And you know, the whole point of Zen is to wake up. Um, and to not believe everything you think. And, and you know, there are many other gems where you spend a lot of time trying to see things clearly. 
rather than hold on to preconceived notions or whatever your sense of identity is. So I had a lot of good training and holding that as a value. But the other thing that, that gave me the courage to do it is, um, you know, I have a history of teaching acceptance as sort of the, the panacea for a lot of different types of suffering. So before this book, my first book was about dealing with chronic pain. My next book was about behavior change and willpower. And so that dealt with, you know, everything from cravings and addiction to intrusive thoughts and trauma and, you know, all the things we don't necessarily want to have inside of us. And I've consistently found in the research that when you accept inner experiences, whether it's pain or craving or an emotion or a memory, when you accept it rather than resist it, when you look for what it can teach you or how you can harness it or how you can transform it, those are all more effective strategies than trying to resist it or avoid it. I knew that in my bones from my own experience with chronic pain, living with chronic pain. I knew it. And I knew it from direct experience of teaching people who suffer from things that I don't experience myself, like addiction or uh, severe mental illness, having seen this, this process play out. And so the thing that finally gave me the courage to fundamentally change the way I teach stress is I had to ask myself, why, why do I believe that acceptance rather than resistance and avoidance is the key to relieving all suffering except for stress? Like, wh why am I holding on to the idea that stress is somehow fundamentally separate from every other aspect of life? And the only conclusion I could come up with is because that's what I'd been trained, that that's what our culture, that, that is like our cultural belief. And it's a shorthand for like a whole way of trying to engage with life. And it's just easy to think in those terms because people don't want to be uncomfortable, because people want to believe they can control their life's experiences. So we'll just label everything we don't want stress, and then we'll promise you that we have the tool to help you avoid it. And like that's the way that our culture works. And the thing that gave me the courage was to be like, well, I know that's not true for pain, even though we want it to be true for pain. I know it's not true for addiction, although we want it to be. I know it's not true for trauma and intrusive memories and difficult emotions we don't want to fear, uh, we don't want to feel. I don't want to feel fear. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the emotions I had to come to accept. Um, so I know all that. So why on earth would it not be true for stress? And that's a, that gave me the courage. And the, the other thing is, um, you know, experimentation to start teaching this and see what happens and what feedback I get and how it uh, either empowers people or not. And so my I mean, experience was it empowered people. So I'm hearing three main things, too, is that one is you didn't dismiss the research that you may have sat on it for a little bit, but you're thinking about it the whole time that you like, there's this sort of cognitive dissonance with what, you know, new information is coming in that's different than the old information that you knew. And, and you're, you're kind of mulling it over. So there's this sort of stage where you're not ready to go public with anything yet, because you don't really know what it, it is. But you're, but you're not totally dismissing it either. And it's a, it's actually a very sort of sweet private stage of filtering yeah. information, right? It sort of says, I, I'm, there's something interesting here. I don't exactly know what it is. And I'm going to kind of mull it over a little bit. And there's, you know, as a, as a writer, as a thinker, there, there's something very nice and private about that. And then the next step is 
in effect, there's like a, 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 a connecting it with other things that you know. That's sort of the sleep on it idea, right? I mean, and there's other things that you're seeing. And then, and then thirdly, it's kind of testing it a little bit, throwing it out there, talking to a few people about it probably to see how it gets received. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the way that I experimented with it too is I didn't go out and like teach a whole new class. I actually put my stress class on the back burner for a couple of years and I started testing it out in other settings, like an introduction to psychology, where um, I always gave the lecture at Stanford's intro to psych class. I always gave the health psych lecture. And part of that was supposed to be about how stress will kill you. And I decided to change it um, to introduce some of this research about how, how to deal with test anxiety and social anxiety in a way that helps you thrive. And it was like the first time students would leave this lecture looking happy rather than demoralized. Because I had met the reality of their their lives, which is that it's stressful, and I gave them a tool to help them deal with it rather than just a message that says, you're stressed out, it's final exam time, you're not sure you belong at Stanford. Well, guess what? That stress is killing your brain cells. Like, you might as well go get drunk. <laughs> I didn't say that, but you know, like, that's the kind of message. And so I started experimenting in, in things like that in other groups that I work with. You know, I was trying it out in my yoga teacher trainings. I was trying it out in my compassion cultivation courses that I teach at Stanford. Every, every group I worked with, what's it like when I ask people to basically surrender to the reality of stress and start to recognize that stress can be a catalyst for strengths that we all have? You have this great, you have this great term that you write about, or, or at least I wrote my, in my notes here, but I, I believe these are your words, is we get stressed because versus we get stressed so that right? That we get stressed because of this or because of that is a very negative thing. But we get stressed so that we can perform more effectively. We get stressed so that we can move forward in a certain way. It's a beautiful distinction that you make that feels, you know, really kind of profound in terms of a mind shift. That is, that's interesting. I never really thought about that. It's true. One of the things that I try to focus people's attention on is not the trigger, but um, what your body and brain might be up to. So there's so one of the things people sometimes misunderstand, uh, particularly because you know my publisher chooses these provocative titles that make me like, you know, hold my head and be like, oh no, why couldn't we get like a title that had something like compassion and courage in the t like, all the words that to me are like the heart of the book, and instead it's we get this like provocative stress is good for you and you get good at stress. Um, anyways, so that. Uh, People sometimes think, but what I mean by that is like, so let's make people suffer more. Let's be assholes. Let's be jerks at work. Let's abuse our children. Let's not, you know, or, you know, or, well, anyways, we could have a whole podcast about all the things I'm not saying that people think I'm saying that um, make me cry, but that's a different podcast. Right. But um, the, the, <laughs> the, the distinction that I try to make is like your body and brain are trying to give you signals or give you energy or shift you into a state of mind and body that will help you respond. And you have to really pay attention and like get to know your stress response repertoire because we don't have the same, you know, everyone thinks stress is fight or flight. Well, fight or flight is a percentage of the stress responses you have, but you also have stress responses that are freeze. You have challenge responses. You have tend to befriend responses. You have these bigger than self stress responses that help you connect you can have a growth response to stress. 
And these all have biological bases. They're not identical. It's not not all just, you know, adrenaline overload or, you know, death by cortisol, that like the things that we fear about stress. Um, and if you start to really listen to stress, you'll recognize that you're having a stress response, not just because somebody criticized you, but so that you'll be motivated to reflect on what just happened and learn from it so that you will be motivated to connect with someone who cares about you so that you can process this without feeling, you know, completely overwhelmed by, um, by the negative emotions that go along with all of that. And that your body is doing that for you, even though we don't always love how it feels, but it's trying to prime us to be effective. And if we think that stress is just a, a negative inner state, we shouldn't feel we start to shut down the parts of the stress response that are trying to motivate us to act or reflect or connect with others. Well, it, or- it occurs to me too, as you're speaking, that the whole idea of we get stressed because of something is all about the past, whereas mm-hmm. we get stressed so that is all about the future. It is, and it's right. You, you know, I've never thought about this. What an interesting insight you've had. I'm going to start to use this language more intentionally. I love that you thought it was intentional. As you were saying it, I had no idea what you're talking about. I wasn't sure if it was your language or my language. I know I took the notes, but... It's really good language because (laughs) uh, when you focus on... You know, what I often ask people to do is to think about why they care. That's that's often the main mindset reset I ask people to start with. Why do you care? And then what could this be for? Uh, And and those are both forward... They're forward-leaning mindsets as opposed to... This, if you think that you just get stressed because something happened, it comes with it the assumption that your goal now should be to turn it off. Like the stress is a reaction to something. Right. At like It's like uh, you know a fever you want to reduce or you know a wound that you want to heal quickly as opposed to a state that is actually you need this state in order to react or, or resolve. It's an illness versus a benefit. Yeah, this is a tool. I feel like an illness too. Yeah, I mean the other thing too about all this, the complexity. I, I am, you know, in real life and in the book, a million times in the book, I'm like, you know, readers, you're going to have to hold some opposites here, because there are going to be things that seem to contradict each other that are both going to be true, and that is the reality of the science. That people who want a very neat story about stress are going to be very disappointed in the book as well as in the actual science, like the actual reality of stress. It's so complex and it involves being able to accept that stress can make you sick and stress can make you stronger. Uh, And the, the good news is we can play a role in that. But the bad news is we also can't completely control the effect that stress has on us. I think one of the reasons why the, we have such simplistic and negative opinions about stress is we desperately want to be able to control our lives and our health and our experiences. And even just to acknowledge that we don't have full control is, um, is a big leap for people to make. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's, it seems like the belief is a step towards regaining some of that control. Meaning if I believe certain things about stress, then, then I can take the reins a little bit in my experience. And I, I think it's super important to not uh, go off the deep end with this right. in the sense of, being like, and so if you get stress-related migraines, you're doing stress wrong. It's one of the reasons why I don't like the subtitle of my book. Like, There's right. this idea that if you're suffering, it's because you're doing stress wrong. You're bad at stress. Uh, that is really it, – that's not – it's almost like that's a parallel track to the way that I think about this. And the, the reason that choosing your own stress mindset matters 
is because it allows you to play a role in how stress affects you and it allows you to transform stress into things that we value, like growth and meaning and connection or positive action. Um, but that does not, it, it's not a guarantee that you can control your experience or that you won't suffer. And some of the people who've been most attracted to this work, I have to say, are people who, who also believe that if you think something, you can make it true. Like all I have to do is just think, you know, I'm going to be president of the United States. And if I think it hard enough, it'll happen. Um, or, you know, if I think negative thoughts, I'll give myself cancer. And if I think positive thoughts, I'll cure my cancer. Like that actually, I do not view as being in the same world as what we're talking about in part because stress actually is, it's like the classic archetype of a mind body response. Like it is the only physical response you have that is almost solely determined by what you're perceiving and how you're thinking, mm -hmm. right? So of course it's going to be affected by how you think and what your perceptions are, because that's what stress is. That's not what cancer is. So anyways, right, I always feel like right. I have to jump in and I've actually been asked that sometimes in interviews, well, how is this different than believing that you can just cure yourself of cancer by thinking good thoughts? Because cancer is not, you know, your tumor is not a, a manifestation of a mind-body process in the way that stress is. Right. It, it, it reminds me that you're very uh, cutting edge in what you're doing because of the worlds that you're involved in in which you walk. Like you're involved, you talked a little about this beforehand, but you're, you know, you have a big heart and you have a big mind and you're involved in both of those worlds. And, and the... Uh, you know, the mind world doesn't always appreciate the heart world and the heart world doesn't always appreciate the mind world. And, you know, your credibility at Stanford is obviously really important. And your, you know, sort of research and your beliefs and your commitments um, that go beyond that is also really important. And I wonder how you, first of all, whether this is an issue for you and how you uh, kind of manage yourself in the context of walking the boundary between these two worlds that are often seen as very separate? Yeah, it's a good question. I feel like there are a number of, um, there are a number of tensions that I experience being both in the science world and in the world of service. It's sort of the way that I think about the, the other work that I do. And gosh, I have, I, what I have come, so, you know, I mentioned this earlier that my main intention in life is to relieve suffering and help people thrive. And so at the end of the day, that's what I care about. And at the end of the day, that's what I choose. It just so happens that I believe science is a, a, um, a resource for that. It's kind of like, it's like my main epistemology, but not my only one. Like, I, you know, I, it's easier to convince me through science than through say rhetoric and argument. I'd like to see some data. But the data I believe the most is actually based on my direct experience working with people. I mean, that's data too. And um, so when I experience a tension, so for example, one of the tensions I often experience in the scientific world is a complete and utter rejection of religion and worldviews that support people in dealing with suffering. And again and again in my experience, religion and faith play a major role in holding communities together and supporting people through difficult times, and, and all faiths, and all traditions. And the uh, ridicule that that receives in the scientific world uh, drives me crazy. I'll give you an example. I did um, an NPR interview with a famous scientist, and we were talking, it, so we were the two co-experts, and people called in, and then the host would toss 
uh, callers to one of us. Only one of us got to respond to each caller and they would just sort of pick. So someone called in who was recovering from alcoholism and was talking about how great AA had been for him and how important his belief in higher power was and how that had really allowed him to make this incredibly difficult change. And the other scientist's response was, well, I'm sorry, but that's wrong because there is no higher power. So if you've gotten better, that's not what helped you. It's not a direct quote, but that's a pretty, that's pretty close. And of course, I'm not allowed to respond. And I'm like, like, so that's a really good example of this kind of tension I sometimes experience, where if it comes down to sort of what the intellect versus a direct connection where you're seeing someone and you are in the presence of either suffering or hope and meaning, I'm just going to go with the latter. I'm going to go with the direct experience connection the meaning, the hope, uh, and not retreat into what sometimes feels like a, like a behind the wall intellectual argument. Right. And I don't, you know, I don't always experience that type of tension, but that when it comes down to it, I, I sort of, you know, you err on the side of service. I, I err on the side of service and also, uh, listening. I believe people have a lot of wisdom about what they need and part of my job and you'll I think it was more true in this book than in my previous books one of my goals with the upside of stress was to go out and listen in a way that would allow me to really convey how people had experienced the benefits of this science and this mindset there are a lot more detailed stories that are not composites it's not like I smooshed together a few examples they have a really good example like super detailed sometimes in the direct words of the people who I talk to I feel like that that also is something that is uh, not always valued in academics or science, this kind of deep listening to people and valuing what they say and what their own um, insights and intuitions are. So my, the book that I'm working on right now is, is the working title is Emotional Courage. And if you're willing oh. to feel everything, then you can do anything. That ultimately we stop ourselves from doing things because we don't want to feel stuff. You know, I don't That's have a hard conversation because I don't want to feel something. And thank you. And it's exciting and it's fun and, and I'm I'm fully, fully immersed in it right now. Wait, wait. You're not allowed to – wait. Before you go on, I'm going to flip <laughs> roles because I have to ask this. I have a belief. You know the saying, all research is me search and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is it that you don't most don't want to feel? Oh, so much. So I mean I, <laughs> I feel like I feel like I've really – you know, I've, I've spent really – because I've been exploring this and the reason that I'm writing it is I'm, I'm really exploring it um, – uh, I mean, but it's everything from, from little things. I mean, I'm sort of studying, I really am doing research. Like I'm kind of constantly putting myself in these situations and it's everything from little things. Like I don't want to feel your rejection or I don't want to feel, you know, to, I don't want to feel shame or I don't want to feel, I don't want to feel abandoned. I don't want to feel like I'm alone. I don't want to feel, you know, I, I write, you know, I write my Harvard business review articles and I've been writing them a lot less recently because I really feel like I want to focus on this book. And that just doesn't give me time. I mean, I spend I, I, it spends six to seven hours to write one blog post because I, I really like that's kind of how I write them. And that's what it takes. So I find myself not writing them and fearing that I will lose my audience, that I like no one will know who I am. No, you know, and then I'll like the fear of like, well, how big is my ego that like, I need people to know who I am. And, you know, there's business reasons for it. But there's like the personal stuff. And, and um, so I, I mean, I, you know, it's so there's so much of this, that, that I feel that requires courage. I mean, it requires courage to say, you know what, 
for the next few months, maybe six months, maybe a year, maybe I won't write an article for Harvard. And maybe that means that people won't be following me and, pe- you know, and my mailing list will drop off. And, and yet, and, and what you're saying, which I'm really resonating with, is um, what helps to build that courage is the sense of, you know, here's something bigger than me that feels really important and that I care deeply about and that I'm willing to feel those things in order to pursue this other thing that feels like it's like it's something that's more important than than my little fears and my little ego or my big ego that should, you know, that that feels threatened. You know, you had asked about the courage it took to be like, oops, I was wrong about stress. You know, in writing, so we're talking about writing books, there, there were a couple of things with this most recent book where I was really scared to write the book the way I wrote it. And at the end of the day, I felt I had to. One of the things that um, I, you know, I had to think consciously about is, you know, I know the science really deep. And part of me wanted to write a book that was unassailable to somebody else who knows the research and to like touch every nuance and all the, all the negative studies. I know that people who know the research are going to be thinking, but what about that one classic study? And, and I thought, like, I thought about what I know about the science of mindset interventions. And I thought, what do I care more about? Whether other people who know something about stress are going to be able to find things that I should have put in that I didn't put in that would have, you know, more fully painted the nuanced complexities of stress. Or do I want to write a book that's going to be an effective mindset intervention that is true, but doesn't say everything I know, that it's, it's true and also biased in a way that is going to help people adopt a more balanced worldview than what they currently have, which is strongly negative. And that took a lot of courage because I knew that there would be some reviews and I knew that that some of my colleagues would be, would you know what I mean? Oh, for sure. I know what you mean. But I'm proud that I did that because the, the emails that I've gotten from people who read this book and I sort of think like, well, what's the point of this book? And I was, you know, I always think for every book, there's like one sort of kind of reader. And I'm thinking about, for this book, I was like thinking about people who were in really difficult situations that matter to them. They're caring for maybe a dying parent, or they you know, have a child with a disability, or they're involved in work that is incredibly difficult, a cop or a, you know, a physician or a nurse or a social worker, that, that people are, maybe they're dealing with their own severe anxiety or depression. Like People who are really struggling with something and I wanted them to have a sense of more hope and meaning and strength as a result of it. And I knew that the book that would do that was not the book that was going to, uh, you know, be the have the the strongest sort of scientific complexity and balance. So, but I, but in the emails that I've gotten in response to the book suggest that 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 those people got it. Right. Right. As opposed to a few cranky psychologists who are going to have to change the name of their business from, uh, you know, I get rid of your stress to something else. Like I help you transform stress. (laughs) Right. No, that's beautiful. And it's true. You know, I, I, um, I love what you're saying about kind of the decision you made about your book. I was in a conversation. I was just on vacation. Eleanor and I take a week, just the two of us every year without our kids, uh, biking and 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 that's sort of where we strategize about our lives and connect and 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 I was struggling with the time of writing this book and I one of the things that I said to her is like I want this book to really be uh, from the heart like mm-hmm. I don't want this to just be 
you know, witty. I don't want it to just be popular. I really want it to be from the heart. And one of the things that I've been thinking about, I don't know that I'm going to really structure it this way, but like, I want this to be a letter to my kids, like of like emotional courage. I mean, to me, I think it's the key to unlock everything. And, and, uh, and she said, she said, it asked me a very interesting question. She said, um, how can you put yourself in that? Cause you can't in the middle of your day when you're doing a bunch of business and et cetera, you can't just take an hour and write from the heart. Like it just doesn't work that way. So how could you do it? And I said, you know, I, I think I need to write from six in the morning until nine in the morning. Like I just, I just need to write. I need to wake up, roll out of bed and start writing when I'm least offended and I'm tired and I'm like, I'm not being strategic and I'm just sort of in a feeling, you know, I can meditate for a few minutes beforehand. And, and so now I've sort of restructured my day so that I'm writing from six to nine and everything else happens after that. Uh, and I'm fortunate that Eleanor's, you know, kind of taking the morning burden of the children, uh, you know, from me so that I can actually do that. But it's, but it's, I think, it's you important. know, this is, that's a really important insight that you had when I wrote, the last book, one of the things I had to do was turn away from any media or entertainment that I felt was cynical because hmm. I felt that would be the poison to my book. Hmm. That to be aware of how deeply cynical people can be, to write to a cynical audience would have poisoned my book. And I had wow. to, I, even though I know there will be cynical readers, like that's not the reader I care about. Right. Um, so I didn't want to write a book that was like this super defensive argument toward the skeptical or the cynical. Uh, and I feel like that's something that people like should really think about that what they expose themselves to. And if there's a particular if they want to live a certain way, if there are choices that you can make that allow you to be that version of yourself instead of constantly be influenced by or defending against, you know, other like you said, you, you know, you did in the beginning of the day. But I think like people should make some serious choices about you know, the whole day and how they spend their time. I love that. I love that. And it's, it's instructive for me because I think there's, you know, I grew up, I am Jewish and I grew up sort of Jewish in New York city and a kind of a hyper intellectual culture and with a lot of cynicism. There's a lot of cynicism in, in the, in the culture that I grew up in and, and um, disbelief and, and, you know, kind of that sort of slightly tilted head, a little, you know, uh, 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 your eyes a little slanted a little bit and, and kind of going like, really? So what, what makes you think that? Or where, you know, what's your, what's your support for that? Yeah. Well, that's okay. That's, you know, that could be thoughtful. That's it is at a certain stage, yeah. but in the stage where you're gestating, when you're just right. kind of something's being born a little yeah. bit, I'm not sure that it can withstand that kind of cynicism. Mm -hmm. I think at a certain point it needs to. But I think at a certain point, you, it needs to be held like a child in a little bit. Yeah. No, no, I agree. And, and often, so if you're working on something, you need to go for the people who have the hunger or the pain point that you're writing to. Those are the people you should be talking to. Right. Um, because they'll, the people who have the pain point receive it in a very different way um, than people who don't have the pain point. Right. I think that's actually very profound. I mean, I, I a friend of mine who is depressed and we've just been having some more meals than we normally have to just kind of connect. And, and I was sharing some stuff with him that he was saying, you know, I believe all of it at this point. Like I, like, at, at, like I, I don't see how being cynical about much of this has helped me in any way. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that we openly accept everything, no matter, you know, like 
just think differently and you'll cure cancer. Like that's not, that's mm-hmm. not what he's saying, but, but a sense of letting your defenses down and that happens for people in pain. And it's actually why I also think the science basis is really important because people in pain can also be vulnerable. And, and so I think, you know, we have to take care, which I think you do very beautifully in your book, but we have to take care when we're sharing information to people who are in more vulnerable places that, um, that we're supporting what we're saying. I mean, it's why the science piece is important because you, um, you know, cause they're vulnerable and you need to recognize, we need to recognize that. Well, one of the other things I think is really important you know, when, when I think about the role that any of us can play in helping others is how important it is to not view yourself as the savior or the, the sole answer. You know, I always think of anything that I might have to offer, a class, a book, or whatever. It is, it's meant to sort of enter the stream of someone's life and support them, but not to play like the dominant role that uh, relationships or psychotherapy or coaching or religion or whatever they rely on. Um, And it it would be, um, I think it would be, well, it's definitely a trap that people can fall into to think that they have the solution that ends people's suffering as opposed to viewing yourself as you know, part of the conversation. Yeah. And being part of the conversation. Um, Kelly, I don't know if you still have time. I'm way over what I normally do for podcasts, but I'm having so much fun. And there's a couple of other questions I want to ask you. you... Let's keep going. Okay. So, um, uh, you sort of said you, you made this statement that was really interesting, which said that you chose to have your book, not just be kind of the, um, unassailable scientific paper on stress, but a book that changes people's mindsets. And you talk about this in the book also about how you change a mindset. So I'm curious, as you wrote the book and you're thinking of it as a tool for changing mindsets, how do you change a mindset and how did that translate in your book? Yeah. So this is based, this whole idea of like, how do you change a mindset? I I draw on a couple of different uh, bodies of research. One is actually um, something called transformative learning theory. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's for teachers who want to sort of fundamentally change people's understanding or framework that they use, whether you're you know, teaching physics or you're teaching philosophy or you're teaching you know, stress mindsets. Um, and that theory says that in order to change people's minds, you have to make them uncomfortable through some, something that's disorienting, has a little bit of discomfort or a little bit of like, what? Uh, you know, confusion and... Uh, and then at that point, you have to quickly start supporting a process of self-reflection and often uh, social interaction or social processing in a way that people feel safe to try new ideas, to be wrong, to start to, to practice new ways of thinking and being. And that's, you know, that sort of informed all of my teaching since I, I got started teaching in, at Stanford. So that's sort of that research. But then there's this much more specific body of research that I write about in the book by people like Carol Dweck and Greg Walton, uh, that if you want to help someone choose a mindset that's going to be more useful for them, you introduce this new idea through a little bit of science or some other kind of data point, like how people read surveys of other people who were interviewed about their experiences. And you ask them, like, does this feel true to you? Tell me about some experiences you've had that are consistent with this idea. So you actually ask people not to like pro and con it, 10 reasons this idea is wrong, 10 reasons this idea is right, or like let people defend either that they want. 
We actually ask people to choose to look through their own Rolodex. Do people even know what a Rolodex is anymore? Yeah, I do, but I, uh, but yeah, <laughs> you're right. Rolodex of memories or scroll through your iPhone or whatever, like scroll through. Your Instagram of memories. And um, look for experiences that are consistent with this idea. That's the second part of the mindset intervention. And the third part of my favorite mindset interventions, and I've come now to believe this is the key. Now that you've been introduced to a new idea, you've reflected on your own experiences that are consistent with it, you are told that you have an opportunity to help others by sharing this information with them and your own experiences. So to give an example of this, one of the studies I write about in the book uh, was led by Greg Walton, informing um, freshmen at an Ivy League school Guess what? Most freshmen, when they show up, wonder if they belong. They think they might be frauds or imposters. Uh, they aren't sure they fit in. Like everyone feels that way, and most people think it's just them. So they're introduced to that. They read some survey data about how most people feel that way and how they don't feel that way as they go forward, that it doesn't last. It gets better. Uh, so then they're, they're asked to sort of reflect on their own experiences, if you know, they've ever had an experience like that, and then to uh, make a video for next year's freshmen, trying to explain this idea to next year's freshmen so that they understand that if they feel like they don't belong or they're worried about whether they're an imposter, that everyone feels that way and that it'll get better with time. So that's sort of a classic example of it. And there are other versions of that. So that's the three-part mindset intervention. New idea, reflect on what's true for you about it, your own experiences, and then Think about that new idea as something you have to offer others who are struggling. And uh, that is basically how I frame the book. And when I teach the course, that's how I teach the course. Um, just here's an idea. What do you think? Is it possible that people um, can experience growth from traumatic experiences? That's what we're, So I'm teaching the course right now. That's this week's topic. Introduce some science around it. Fully acknowledge the fact that people also experience harm and suffering from trauma. It's not all rosy. Uh, but some of the science on post-traumatic growth, and then ask people, how have you grown from adversity or trauma in your own life? And everyone's writing their growth narratives, and everyone is sharing them with other people in the class. Uh, and they, I ask them to specifically think about their stories as an offering to other people who maybe will see their own experiences reflected in that growth narrative. So that's an example of how I teach. It's sort of how the book is set up. Um, and if if anyone listening to this is interested in changing their mind about anything, uh, you can set up your own mindset intervention, which is really to adopt this bigger than self mindset and think, who else needs to believe this? Who else needs to hear this message? Okay, maybe it's comforting for me to think that people can change. Like that's a that's a mindset. There's evidence on both sides, but you could choose to believe that people can change, and uh, you could reflect perhaps on how you've changed or people in your life have changed in a positive way. And then you have to think, who who right now is wondering whether they can change? Who's struggling to make a change that I know? Could I share some of that science with them? Or could I encourage them or tell them a story about change that's going to help them through this difficult time? Right? That's, that's a mindset intervention. Can you use a mindset intervention for, for something? I mean, I, I, I'll tell you what I'm actually thinking, which is that I was having this conversation with my wife about God and, and, and talking about do you believe in God? And she asked me this question, do you believe in God? And I was sitting there and, you know, we've had, we've known each other 30 years and this is not the first time we've had this conversation and she's a minister. So mm -hmm. like we've, we've, you know, talked about God a lot, but I thought, you know what, this is the distinction. I realized in that moment 
you know, I can feel God, like for myself, I feel God, but I don't know that I believe in God. And I don't know how to put those two things together, but I know that I feel God. How do I, like, can I take a mindset process, a mindset changing process like that and put it towards something that ultimately, like, who knows, right? There's no science that's going to tell us that God exists or doesn't exist. So I'm curious about a belief that you know could help you. Like there's, you could look at a lot of research and you could say, there's a lot of research that points to the fact that if you do believe in a higher power, if you do believe that that could be really helpful for in, in a lot of different dimensions. So you could say, look, I want to believe that because I know it could be helpful. I even feel it at times, but I don't know that I believe it. Can you change that kind of a mindset? That's it. No one's ever asked about that particular belief before. So I will say that um, the types of beliefs that are most amenable to this process are ones for which there is sort of ample evidence on both sides. And if you pay attention to life with a particular with a particular version, you will behave in ways that change the reality of your social world. So let me give an example of that. And this is like when we, we look at interventions, like what are the most important beliefs that shape your 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 health and your happiness? There are a few key beliefs. And they, they seem to be these types of beliefs where it actually goes both ways. So one is whether or not you believe other people are basically trustworthy. Uh, you could argue for both. And I would actually argue most people are trustworthy in some contexts and not trustworthy in, in other contexts. And, it, you know, there's like I don't think there's yes or no to this one. Right. But when you believe that most people are basically untrustworthy, you act in ways that make people less trustworthy. Absolutely. hundred percent. Trust you less. And it begins to change your social world. And the same is true when you, you, you assume that most people are trustworthy or good. You behave in ways that actually elicits different things from your environment. It changes social relationships. It changes the resources that are available to you. So all of the research on mindset interventions that have shown really interesting outcomes like improving people's health or reducing depression or you know in, improving performance in in work or school they almost always are targeting these beliefs where there is a paradox at work and that your perception allows you to engage in ways that that really do change your reality and not in a woo woo way right and so I, I actually think that's very similar, by the way. I think that idea of trustworthy, I could see a world in which I think people are untrustworthy, you know, and supported by a tremendous amount of evidence that would support that. And the same thing, a tremendous amount. I, in fact, my uh, a, sh- a quick story. My mother is a survivor of the Holocaust. She was in France. She's French. She was in France during the Holocaust. And so I grew up very much with that uh, sense and mentality and a certain distrust and and i and i was talking to her about it and i said look there's two ways that you can look at this one is you really can't trust people right because because that's true on the other hand you survived the holocaust because people hid you mm-hmm. right you survived because people were willing to hide you and your family in a way that enabled you to survive so what do you take out of that experience do you take out of that experience a sense that you cannot trust anybody or that there's that you really can trust because you survived. And it's, 
you could see evidence either way. So that's very much very similar to the to the dilemma I posed to you. And you know what I said in the I don't know if you finished the book, but in the last the very last part of the book, I always feel like the last sections of my books are always pleas to the reader, like like P L E A S, like I'm making a plea to the reader. And my plea to the reader was, look, guys, I am not making an intellectual argument that stress is good for you. I'm telling you that mindset is a stance you choose to take toward life, knowing that the reality is both opposites are always possible and always at play. It's a stance you're choosing to take toward life. And it, in, in a way, I actually feel like for mindset to be most powerful, you need to know you're taking a stance and you need to not be foolish enough to, to not see the complexity of the world. So that you like, decide, I'm going to trust people. I'm going to make a decision yeah. that people are trustworthy. And I know... It's proven otherwise. Well, but, but it's, it's easy to be proven otherwise. So I think well, in order to hold that stance... Interesting. It's, it's actually, if you believe that people are untrustworthy, it's very easy to Did to I just expose that. my own view? But, but also there are narcissists and sociopaths in the world. Right. It turns out, so one of the, the little bits of science that I share in my science of compassion class is that people who have the, the greatest compassion and empathy for others and the most trusting of others actually are the most skilled at detecting lies. Uh, and people often believe that if you choose to trust others, you're just an idiot and you will then be completely exploited. I actually think it's because that, you know, people who choose to be trusting of others, they pay a lot of attention to people. And they detect lies more than people who have sort of a default assumption that ah, everyone's lying. Like, they don't even know what to pay attention to. They're not really paying attention. And uh, so anyway, you know, that's sort of a side. But you know, Maria Konnikova, I don't know if you know the name, but yes. she wrote the book, The Confidence Game. She's she's great. and She's been on this podcast. Um, she said something to me that was very, very profound, which was, I... I don't want to be the kind of person who can't be conned. Mm. Like if you're going to not be conned, you're going to have so many defenses up. It's so hard to not be conned that if you're going to not be conned, you have to have so many. I don't want to be that person. So I don't know if I've been conned or not. She said to me, like, I, you don't know if you've been conned or not. Like that's the nature of a con. But I would rather be conned and be that person than not be conned and be that person. Yeah. And that's like... You know, that's sort of what you're saying. And still, there's that moment that I guess it requires some courage to go, I'm going to trust because I haven't with this particular person, it hasn't been proven to me whether I can trust or not. And I'm going to take the risk to trust. Yeah. And in some contexts, by the way, that won't be most adaptive. That's something else I write about in the book that's its own other level of complexity. In some environments, it makes a lot of sense to be afraid. In some environments, it makes a lot of sense to be to shut down your sensitivity to others there is you know there are contexts there's a recent study that came out an economic study showing that people who are most trusting of others make more money unless you live in a nation that is characterized by extremely high levels of corruption and violence um, yeah. and so there you always have to part of this is you always have to be reality based even though we're talking about how mindsets can change your reality uh, I feel like this is one of those opposites we have to hold in that that you're you're listening to experience while also choosing to play a role in um, in how you direct your energy and attention, which I guess is I'm going to just plug it here, which is a vote for meditation, which says <laughs> that your ability to be meta a little bit, your ability to step above what's going on and look at it and go, 
can I be flexible to my situation? What is my situation really? Who are the people around me? What are the guards I might have up? But what's, what am I really facing? And given that, how do I proceed? Do I, you know, do I trust people? Do I not trust people? Is this stress bad for me? Is it good for me? Anything like that. Yeah. Along the same lines, sometimes stress is a signal that you're in a situation that is unsustainable and toxic. The stress itself is not necessarily toxic unless you don't pay any attention to the signal. And you're like, oh, I'll just stay in this job that's killing my soul. Um, and I'll focus on taking bubble baths so that I feel less stress when I get home. Like that could be a toxic recipe. But the stress itself is often, you know, the discomfort that you feel. Sometimes that stress is trying to save your life. Sometimes it's trying to make you so uncomfortable that you're willing to make a change in your environment or your reality. And this comes back to that idea that we have to learn to trust stress a little bit more rather than try to instantly escape it. Kelly, thank you. I've I've gone I've gone twice as long as I've ever gone for podcasts. So, but it's just it's so enjoyable and so fun to talk to you. The book is The Upside of Stress: Why Stress is Good for You and How to Get Good at It. Hopefully from this conversation you've understood the complexity of that and that it's not just one-sided. Uh, and and that that might not be Kelly's favorite subtitle for this book, but it, I have to say it's really a fantastic book, and you can tell by my excitement in this conversation. Kelly, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you for a fun conversation. I'm looking forward to um, an emotional courage. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.